morning is from Mark 14, 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer, the word of the Lord. Good morning. What do we do with our unanswered prayers? What do you do with your unanswered prayers? On June 17th, our, our friend Steve passed away and entered the presence of the Lord. Uh, if some of you were here on Easter, you may have remembered uh, me putting up, I think, the same picture and asking you to pray for Steve. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, our, our, rela- our relationships with Steve and his family are deeply entwined. I met Steve in 1998 when I started as a youth pastor. And he was very compassionate on me and all the mistakes I made. His kids were part of the youth ministry. And him and his wife, Ann, jumped in and volunteered faithfully for 15, 20 years. Uh, We ran uh, several marathons together and many marathon training sessions. He kind of taught me how to be a dad in a lot of ways. And uh, just an incredible dude. Came from a tough family background, uh, struggled with alcoholism, and, and collided with Jesus, who forever changed him. And I'm prone to hyperbole, as you, as you know, but uh, I've known a lot of people in my life, and it's hard for me to think of a person as gentle and gracious and Christ-like as Steve. So when Steve was diagnosed, uh, his kids, who we know well, uh, Steve's son married uh, my wife, Corey's sister. So I'm an uncle to some of Steve's grandkids. Uh, and his 12 grandkids, we begin to pray. And I would, I would guess thousands of people were praying for Steve passionately, like calling out to God, like Steve's death has lost a huge hole. Our church back in Madison is a large church and it was packed to the brim uh, for his memorial service. And yet God was silent. God was silent. Why? (laughs) What do we, I bet you have some prayers like that. What do you do with them? Where do you find space for them in your head and your heart? in your journey of Jesus? How does it cause you to look at God? Uh, what do we do with our unanswered prayers? When you came in, uh, there was a basket and uh, pieces of paper and a pen, 
And uh, if you don't have one of those, raise your hand and our ushers can bring you one because uh, we want to be as interactive as possible around here. We don't want you just listening, but we want you participating. So no shame. Uh, you could have easily missed it as you were walking in. And uh, some of you might have deliberately avoided it. And then there is shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's no shame-free space. Um, but we would love if you're willing to participate. It's a very simple thing. Very simple. Um, so keep your hand up and somebody will bring you a pen and a sheet of paper. Um, so this is what I want you to respond to. And then we'll interact with it after we're done in a different way. I just want you to ponder and answer the question. Maybe you don't have an initial answer. Maybe it'll take you time and uh, maybe you'll change your answer throughout the server. That's all okay. But the question is, uh, what is your greatest unanswered prayer? Or if that's too much for you, uh, just what's an unanswered prayer right now? that's kind of lurking in your prayer life, maybe has for a long, long time. Uh, just go ahead and jot that down. It could be somebody's name. It could be a longer description, however you want to use it. Uh, just write that down. And then I want you to keep it. And, and again, some of you may not want a neighbor to see, and that's okay. But maybe keep it kind of where maybe you can reference it and look at it, because uh, that is the heart of today's message. We'll wrestle in, uh, in, in way too short of an amount of time with the question, what do we do with our unanswered prayers? And I want it to be real for all of us. I don't want you to wrestle through my unanswered prayer. I got plenty of them. I want you to wrestle through your unanswered prayers as apprentices of Jesus. What does that look like? What do we do with them? Uh, so we're, uh, the passage you heard is from Mark's gospel or eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. We think that Peter was Mark's eyewitness, which is interesting because Peter is instrumental to this story. So I always think about that. How was that as Peter is describing to Mark what it was like, and Mark's writing down what it was like. The same story, it's a little bit different, is in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. We chose Mark's. It's a nice, concise telling of the story, and I really like the prayer that Jesus prays. So let's get a little bit of context. So Jesus, I think that he had a quasi-Passover meal the day before Passover, and then they leave that place of the upper room, we call it, and they would have walked down through the Kidron Valley, down a hill, and then up the west side of the Mount of Olives, where you can visit today, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it's changed some, I'm sure, uh, but we went there last year. We did that same walk, and it is still an olive grove, which it was at the time of Jesus. And so uh, olive press is what Gethsemane means. That's literally what the word means. So Jesus and his disciples, we think they probably frequented this spot. It was late at night. They probably had it to themselves. Probably a hallowed space for Jesus. And so uh, we, he at least had the 11 disciples. Judas has already exited. He'll re-enter to the end of the story. And then we're pretty confident uh, women disciples are with them and others. So we don't know how big the group was, but maybe it's 20, 25 people that are with Jesus. So he tells the majority of them to stop here. And then he continues on with James and John and Peter, who are kind of his inner circle. Uh, Jesus is at a point of deep anguish, is if you were listening to the words to describe him. So if you've ever been in that spot, I bet you have. It's really good to have trusted friends, to hold vigil with you, uh, to hopefully pray with you and weep with you and mourn with you. And I think that's what was in the heart of Jesus. And yet, as is custom, Jesus went further and found a place of solitude that he could talk uh, to God. And so he did. And uh, Mark uh, gives us some descriptors. He gives us kind of an inside peek of how, what Jesus was thinking, how he was feeling. Three of them, if you look down in your text, and if you have Matthew, uh, Mark 14, you can follow along here. He says he was uh, deeply disturbed, 
troubled, which that word could also mean amazed or awestruck, just kind of like I can't believe what I'm feeling, maybe, and sorrowful to the point of death. Have you ever felt that way? I have. Uh, one translator said that Jesus uh, sank into a pit of suffocating despair. That's kind of what was going on. That's what Mark wants us to know. That was, the, the, we believe, the, the church believes, scripture I think reveals that Jesus was fully God and fully human. There's so much mystery there. We see Jesus' humanity on full display here. One commentator said, Jesus prayed fervently in trembling horror of what was coming, the cross, the emotional, the spiritual, the physical uh, toil of what was coming, of what Jesus expected. He, tells, uh, he told Peter and John and James to stay put and keep watch. Uh, Mark tells us Jesus went down on his face, which was not the normal posture in Jewish prayer. You would stand praying. But when it got really intense, that's when your posture would go all the way down, face to the ground. I call them lips to the ground prayers, if you've ever been to that place. Jesus is distraught. He's laying it all out. And then Mark tells us in his mind that he is praying that the hour might pass. This phrase, the hour, comes back in later when he sees it doesn't pass. But this hour refers to his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is praying, is there another way? He, he, this, this message this week works with our message last week, the Lord's Prayer, if you were here for that. And what I put forth in that uh, message is that I don't think Jesus is telling us the exact words to pray, although the words are important. The Lord's Prayer puts us in our place. It gives us the right, proper position of our hearts before God. And so Jesus, we see here, this, these messages work together because Jesus is now praying out and living out the very prayer he gave you and I to pray in the garden at his darkest moment. So he prays just like he told us to pray, Abba, Father. And we talked last week that God is our father and not a male. <laughs> God's also our mother. Uh, but this idea of father in the first century was a provider and protector, the potter familiars, the one that takes care of the family unit. This, that's what it's meant to connote. Uh, scholars think that it was an intimate, it's an Aramaic word, Abba. I love Eugene Peterson, uh, translates it, Papa, Papa. Yes, God is this provider and protector, but also there's an intimacy. So Jesus is praying this. Jesus doesn't just tell us to pray this way. Jesus' darkest moment is praying, Papa. Papa, everything is possible for you. And that will be important as we wrestle with this question. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. If we look at that word cup, what does that mean? Uh, we go to the Hebrew prophets and the Hebrew scriptures, and the cup would be kind of God's righteous judgment in response to evil and sin. Uh, Jesus' role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that's what he's stepping into. And he's saying, is, is there another way? Is there another way? And then the heart of the Lord's prayer, and really the heart of this prayer that Jesus carries forth, is not my will, but your will be done. Or you could translate it, not what do I want, but what do you want? So Jesus is modeling prayer, God, Papa, like, if there's another way, but ultimately not what I want, but what you want. Is there, 
is there, Papa, another way for me to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world without the horrifying emotional and spiritual and physical cost? Is there another way? That's the heart of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays for an hour, Mark tells us, and then he gets up and he goes to find James and John and Peter also praying fervently. No. Was that the passage? That's not what he found. They were taking a power nap. You know, kind of, makes me, this passage makes me feel way better about my own prayer life. Uh, so I love uh, Jesus early in the Gospels renames uh, Simon Peter, and he faithfully calls him Peter until this moment. It's like when your parents call you by your full name and your middle name. You know, you're like, <laughs> he's just kind of like, really, Peter? Really, Simon? Really? You're, you're sleeping? And then that verse last week that, that, that we read from Matthew uh, he's like, stay awake, wake up, come on, I need you. But your spirit is willing, I know, and your flesh is weak. So there's compassion in it, there's understanding. Jesus, uh, Jesus goes back and he does this cycle two more times where he prays for an undetermined length and he comes back and he finds them sleeping again. So finally, the third time he comes back and there's this interesting uh, switch that kind of flips because Jesus is just hearing the silence of God. It's the greatest unanswered prayer of all time. And when Judas comes and he says, the hour now has come, he sees indeed there is no other way. And so at that point, courageously and obediently affirms that he will walk the pathway uh, that he has been praying not to walk. And he comes and he says, let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. It's, it's go time. And, you know, it's interesting to see the beginning, the first words he ever said to the disciples were, come and follow me. It's the same idea. Are they willing to follow him now? In, you know, in the short order, no. The answer would be, but eventually, yes. Eventually, yes. So that's kind of Mark's, Mark's take of Jesus' prayer, but it doesn't really answer my original question. What do we do with our unanswered prayers. I, I wrestled with this message a lot on putting it together. Because for me, um, maybe I'm bifurcating the two things, but I think there are mental answers to this question that are really important, that are huge blocks to people in their faith. Like they literally don't understand why God is silent. Like is God even there? Does God, you know, does God care at all? And then there's the emotional component and they're intertwined, of course. But to try to deal with it all in one message is, is daunting and I'm gonna give it a go. So we'll see. You can tell me later if it doesn't work. Uh, so this middle section is, is from a, a book by Pete Gregg called God on Mutes. Our friend Scotty Burns uh, was here a couple weeks ago. You guys remember that message from Scotty? He had the, the accent that made him sound so intelligent. And he is, he is really intelligent. Uh, but Scott recommended this book by Pete. Pete, I love Pete's work on prayer. Um, Pete started 24-7 prayer movement. He's a pastor. He's also, I'm, I'm part of a, a something called Order of the Mustard Seed. It's a modern monastic order, brothers and sisters from all over the world. Pete is part of that as well. Scotty is as well. So I think the world of Pete and his stuff on prayer, and this is the best book I have found. So if we're scratching the surface of this today, and we will, and you want more, I really, Pete tells a story of his wife almost dying. Of To this day, she is dealing with the side effects of that, and they wrestle in real time. So you hear a bit of, of Pete's story. But kind of at the heart of, of this book, or Pete gives some reasons. He's like, yeah, in the Bible, there are reasons why God might not answer our prayers. And I thought it would be helpful to quickly go through those. 
If I'm wrong, you can tell me later that part of the message didn't work, and it is what it is. So I'm going to go through these really quickly. Um, Pete, at the end of his book, kind of positions these as a checklist, which I thought was interesting. As you look down at your unanswered prayer on your lap, you know, maybe one or two of these things will be like, huh, I ought to take a closer look at that. Uh, Maybe some of them you'll disagree with, and that's totally fine. But I thought it was worth the time in the sermon uh, to give them to you. So I'm going to go pretty quick. You guys ready? Buckle up. So the idea of, uh, you know, typically we approach unanswered prayer with like God doesn't care, or God's not powerful enough, or God didn't hear me, those kind of things. And in Jesus' prayer, right, clearly uh, God, he says it, God, you're powerful enough. Jesus was always talking about God as love, so he believed God cared, and he prayed like God was hearing. <laughs> so there's something Jesus knew that allowed space for unanswered prayers and God still being all uh, loving and all powerful and devoted intricately and deeply attuned to our lives. Jesus knew something we don't know, and maybe some of it's in this. All right, so here we go. Here's some reasons why uh, God might not be answering your prayers. Uh, common sense. Am I asking God to do something stupid? <laughs> Meaningless or illogical. Like every time I pray for any sporting event, it's basically that. When I pray for the Cowboys, please, Lord, this year. Um, I mean, I think that's a righteous prayer. But anyway, um, there's things that God can do. God uh, can't commit evil. God doesn't break promises. Like, so are we just praying something stupid? I think, yes, I am sometimes. Contradiction, are my prayers conflicting with someone else? There's 8 billion people on planet Earth. A lot of them praying. Some moron is praying for the Eagles to win when they play the Cowboys. So how's God going to deal with that? Uh, Again, that's a stupid prayer. Um, Two people bidding on the same house. Uh, Someone gets convicted of a crime. One person's praying for justice. The other person's praying for for mercy, right? All these things. Um, That could be one reason. Uh, Laws of nature are my prayers potentially detrimental to the natural order or lives of others. Uh, Miracles, by definition, are things that defy the laws of nature. They are very rare, at least right now. So are you praying for God to bend the laws of nature on your behalf? He's probably not going to answer. Maybe. Probably not. Or uh, you could be having a birthday party in the summer in the middle of a drought and pray for sunny weather. And we really need rain. And so, you know, there's all these kind of things at play. Life is tough. Am I expecting God to spare me from stuff that's just common human experience because of the fall? Jesus says, you will have suffering. He says, each day has enough trouble of its own. Peter says, do not be surprised when you experience suffering. Paul says, creation is groaning under the weight of sin. And so we live in that world, and then sometimes we expect it all to go really well. The only time when we're not going to experience suffering is when we're no longer living Uh, So I don't think that's possible as a human. Revelation, does my prayer reflect God's character and promises in the Bible? N.T. Wright is a British scholar. A lot of people think he's one of the the brightest scholars in the world. And uh, he likes to say uh, he knows that 20% of what he teaches and writes is heresy. He just doesn't know which 20%. <laughs> I think that's like humbling, right? You got to hold things loosely. You may have fervent beliefs, but you got to hold them li- Might our prayers uh, be praying into a caricature of God that is not true or something that's inaccurate? Are there things for all of eternity we'll be learning about God? Yes. And so uh, we ought to, ought to hold those things uh, loosely. All right, so uh, that, that was kind of those five under the, he categorized them under the God's world. We live in this world that works this way right now. Uh, the second five are God's will. I think we're getting into the heart of things now. 
uh, God's will. How does our will, our free will, work with God's will, and how does that coincide with unanswered prayer? Uh, God's best, although my desire and prayer is for something good, is it possible that God has something even better in store for me? There was this old TV show that some of you might remember called Father Knows Best. Do you remember that? So I think that's a little what I believe in prayer, as I understand it, that God knows best. God knows better than I do. God can see the bigger picture and know what's good for me, even when I'm praying for things that aren't good for me. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet says, my ways are not your ways. Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Um, my, my therapist was talking to me about parenting recently. Uh, we have two teenage girls, God bless them. And he said, John, he said, this is parenting. You basically have to, you have to loan your kids your frontal lobe for because they don't have one that's fully developed yet. <laughs> and I immediately thought about, like, that's God with me, you know? He's like, no, John, no, no, don't do that. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes that's, that's the no. C.S. Lewis famously talked about how we're like ignorant children sometimes choosing to kind of play around in a mud puddle when God's offering us a holiday at sea. You're far too easily pleased, he says. I think that happens sometimes when God... Gives us the no or God is silent. Motive, are my prayers essentially sinful? Might we pray with selfishness? Of course. <laughs> We're all broken, right? We might have a tinge of selfishness in there. Uh, God promises to answer all of our prayers that align with God's will. But that last part's the key part. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, writes, When you ask do not, and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. A relationship, is there an opportunity here for going deeper in my relationship with God? Uh, the late Tim Keller passed away recently from pancreatic cancer, and I, I have to imagine tens of thousands of people were praying for Tim and his recovery. And I, I listened to an interview with him before he died, and it became apparent that God was going to be silent. And he said, you know, as hard as this is, and as much as I love more time, I wouldn't give up my journey with cancer for anything because of the intimacy Kathy and I have found with the Lord in the last couple of years. Whoa. And the truth is, I hear that all the time in pastoral ministry. Yeah, and that doesn't mean the thing is good. The thing is inherently evil and bad and broken. We live in a broken world. But they're saying, my intimacy with God, because in my prayer life, when everything is going hunky-dory and good, I'm not praying a whole lot, just to be honest with you. <laughs> when I'm getting crushed and, and things are really hard, man, I'm on my face before God, and I'm, I'm tasting of a depth of relationship with God I didn't before. So might God hold off a little bit? Better is one day in his house than thousands elsewhere. Maybe, maybe. You can disagree with these things. That's the cool thing. Uh, free will, am I expecting God to override someone else's free will? God is love. That means that God has bequeathed humans free will. No one would ever call being in love, uh, being in a relationship with somebody who's forced to love you. That's not love. Love inherently requires the choice of free will. So when God created the world, uh, he launched this experiment of love where we had free choices. Uh, so might we be praying to control someone else's free will? Yes, in my prayer life. <laughs> God, caused that HR director to give me the job and make my child do this and want this. You know, it doesn't work that way. God respects us too much for those things. Um, and then the last one kind of coinciding with that influence. Am I trying to exercise ungodly power over a person's life? Uh, prayer is not meant to be a manipulative, controlling tool for other people. 
Um, when I was a kid, my, my mom taught me how to cross stitch. Do you guys know what this is? Kind of embarrassing to admit this, but it was like a little, like, it was like a calming hobby, you know, and you have these, you know, it was like, I would just do it. And I do like sports teams that I liked and I'd get done and I'd turn it on the front and be finished. And it was awesome. I really liked it. And then I turned it on the back and it was like a hot mess of knots. <laughs> and I think this is our perspective, the back. At least for me, it is like, oh my gosh, what is happening there? <laughs> Why are these unanswered prayers? I don't understand how it's all working where God has this perspective. Right? It's a simple illustration, but I think it resonates with me. I think it's a little bit of the not my will, but your will. Ultimately, you know best. Pete's last category is God's war. We touched on this last week. Uh, in Jesus' prayer, uh, deliver us from the evil one. This idea that is, if there is this kingdom realm that is invading earth where God's will is always done, then there certainly is this other realm of evil. And, uh, and we get weirded out talking about this stuff. We'll have to do a series on it at some point. There's lots that I don't know about it. But the idea that there is no evil realm, I think, is, is ignorance in, in my opinion. And so Jesus is always trying to tune us, tune our eyes to that interaction. So this is a category, might not our prayers be answered because of this evil realm and the battle that is going on? Uh, I've, I've, you might say, John, but isn't, isn't Jesus victorious? Yes, yes, I heard this illustration to describe it, D-Day. I'm no historian of, of World War II, but as I understand it, once D-Day was won, the battle was over, really. The, the Allies' victory was inevitable. And yet, if you study from that point on, there's so much more death and evil and mayhem. And a lot of times, an enemy is most dangerous when they're down for the count. And I think that's where the evil one is right now. So we live in this world where there is these unseen things. There is more than meets the eye. So satanic opposition is my prayer in line with God's will, but experiencing specific de de demonic resistance. And I know your mind is just like, what's happening? Uh, do, do your devotions in Daniel 10 this week, or, or don't, because it'll like mess with you. But Daniel 10, Daniel's praying, and an angel shows up. He says, Daniel, your prayer has been heard, and your prayer has been answered, but we're getting a lot of resistance spiritually. Like the, the evil presence here is strong and I've had to call in reinforcements. But an answer's coming. <laughs> like what? What? There's more than meets the eye. I don't understand it all, but that could be something that's going on in our prayers. Faith, do I really believe that God can do this? Uh, Jesus' disciples went out, he sent them on their kind of first missionary journey and they came back with a father with a demon-possessed son. The father's flustered. He's like, your apprentices here failed. <laughs> they couldn't cure my son. And so Jesus does it and the disciples are like, what did we get wrong? Like, and he's like, well, that one takes uh, faith. That one takes faith. And this isn't easy believism, pull up your bootstraps, think more positively. Faith as a disciple and apprentice of Jesus takes forever to build. And we may not just be at a point in our journey yet that we have enough hard-earned faith by walking day in and day out with Jesus and seeing God showing up. Perseverance, uh, do I want it enough to keep praying? The evangelist D.L. Moody, uh, early in his life, wrote a list of 100 people that uh, were far from God, that he loved. For all of his life, uh, he prayed faithfully over them. And as they uh, would come to faith in Jesus and become followers of Jesus, he would mark their names off. And at the time of his death, I think he died in his 80s, uh, 96 out of 100 had come to faith. Do we want enough? Do we believe? Are we willing to keep on praying? Sin, honesty time. Is there a secret sin I need to confess? I want to be really careful with this one because I don't want you to hear 
Um, you've got to be sinless or perfect for God to answer your prayers. That's completely the antithesis of what we see in Scripture. But Scripture also says there may be a known sin that we're willingly participating in, that we're not living in honest community, that we haven't confessed and invited the work of the Holy Spirit in, that that could block some of our prayers. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, says, confess your sins so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And the last one, uh, justice. Am I actively seeking to express God's love for the poor? Isaiah 58, the people are fasting and praying and fasting and praying, and God's silent. They're like, God, what's going on? Don't you see us fasting and praying? And God's like, that's not the kind of fast that awakens my heart. Are you feeding the hungry and finding houses for the unhoused and finding clothes for those with no clothes? When you do that, then you call on my name and I will answer. So is there an aspect in our own lives or collectively as the church or even the American church that we're not leaning with God's heart into caring for our vulnerable neighbors where it might be a block to our prayers? So those are just some, some, some things to think about. I think especially in the spiritual realm, I would reaffirm what I said last week. If, you're, if your mind's blown by that, read Screwtape Letters. Start there. I think that's something that can really begin to teach you. Come to me with more questions or one of our pastors if you have them. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that our goal is not to fight evil with our own strength, but to stand fast in the victorious work of Jesus. Paul says that four times. So I hope that was helpful. Maybe it was a complete waste of your time, and you can tell me later, and I'm, I'm sorry. But I think for me, it was helpful to go through those things and maybe even look back down at your unanswered prayer. Was there one or two of those things that resonated? And maybe you're like, nope, <laughs> there isn't. <laughs> it's still, I'm still deeply troubled that this unanswered prayer is sitting before me. Uh, how do we pray when God is silent? How do we pray? I think let's look back at Jesus in the garden. We, here at New Hope, our mission statement is to follow Jesus and share his love. So as best as we're able, we want to look at how Jesus modeled for us how to live and through the power of the Spirit live in the same way. How did Jesus pray when God was silent? What can we learn? I would say first, when God is silent, we should pray loudly, loudly. Hebrews 5, 7, I'm confident that the writer of Hebrews is referencing this ver verse to our story in the garden. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. God was able to. God said no, but he was able to. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Do you wonder, I wonder these things, you wonder how Mark, via Peter, knew the prayer Jesus was praying in solitude from the distance enough to record it in the gospel. I think about those things. It's kind of a nerdy question. Because he was shouting it. Because he was shouting it. He was right there. He's loud. Loud. Jesus is, is modeling lament prayer to us. Uh, the Jewish people, they, they were very connected to their bodies and how they prayed and worshiped. So when they lamented, when they had anger at God or, or doubt or distress or sorrow, they prayed it out. Sometimes they would dump ashes on their head or literally put their faces into the dust. Oftentimes they would rip their clothes, but they were loud. You knew what was going on. 
And I think when we encounter the silence of God, we need to learn how to lament again, how to be loud. Uh, We're invited to do that. Jesus models it for us. Our Psalter, the prayer book that Jesus also prayed, I love that. I pray the same prayer book. We're praying the same prayer book that Jesus did. Two-thirds of the Psalter are laments. Two-thirds. I I told Seth I was going to say this before because I didn't want him to think I was taking a shot at him. I think he and Mark and our other worship leaders do a really great job with this. Uh, But I think the American church in general struggles with this, in my opinion. Uh, Someone recently looked at the top 50 worship songs sung in churches in America and the UK, and they found that only two of them had slight mentions of suffering. None of them mentioned doubt. None of them mentioned doubt. We gotta do a better job. I'm telling my artist friends all the time, please write real songs. (laughs) Please write real songs that praise God and are hopeful, but also real to the daily existence of all of us who are wrestling with unanswered prayers and maybe angry at God and maybe doubting at God and maybe sorrowful and not wanting to come to church. It takes everything in us to come to church. Write for us, write some songs. I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful. I better keep keep saying it. So when God is... uh, Silent, we pray loudly. Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, uh, when God is silent, we pray persistently. Jesus, three times in the short little story, three times the same prayer. In Luke's gospel, right after uh, we get the Lord's prayer in Luke's gospel, we have this little uh, parable. Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, Lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My kids are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, <laughs> he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Right after that, there's this other parable, like Jesus is trying to reaffirm this point and telling us how to pray when God is silent. He says another story, there was a widow that had an injustice done and she went to court and the judge wasn't giving her time of day, but the widow showed up every single day nagging the judge till he was like, gave her what she wanted just to get her to shut up. <laughs> When God's silent, when you look down right now at your unanswered prayer, what does Jesus model for us? It gets annoying, right? Just on and on and on. Till finally God's like, I get it, I got enough on my plate, okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's how it works, but that's what Jesus models. Persistence. Persistence. We keep going out of it. So finally, when 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 God is silent, how do we pray? I think this is the heart of everything that I want to say to you, really. Um, Jesus prays with open hands. Can can you do this with me? Just I think posture matters. When I'm in a meeting with someone and they're doing this, that matters. (laughs) And you don't have to. I'd not try to manipulate. But if you do, I think for me, something opens up in me. And I have even begun to pray more like this because I'm trying to model my, my body after what my heart is. And man, Jesus prays like this. Jesus passionately, is there another way for me to be the lay of a God? Is there another way? Is there another way? Is there another way? But when God's silent and God said no, God clearly said no, Jesus said, okay, not my will, but your will be done. You know best. Father knows best. 
Jesus is like living out the Lord's Prayer. He's modeling, like he prays some of it verbatim. And Pete mentions the points that Jesus doesn't pray in the garden. He lives out or prays the next day on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't ask for bread ever because he was the bread. He didn't ask to be delivered from evil because he was willingly delivering himself to evil on my behalf, on our behalf. And I love uh, Jesus when he, there's a sense that he gets, right? He's bringing us all. He's praying with everything he has. And then when God meets him with silence and God says, then no, Jesus immediately is obedient. You see that? It's almost like instantaneous. Like the hour's up. I see it's, nope, it's a no. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. I don't have that in me right now in most of my prayer life, but I love that both can be true. We try to say it has to be one or the other. We can pray passionately for what God places in our life and what we, my, my spiritual director calls it prayers of holy indifference. Do it, we, we pray the best we can for what we think we want, trusting that Father knows best, trusting that God's will is always going to be best, that there's things that we don't know or things that we don't see. P.T. Forsyth, he was a Scottish preacher. I love this quote. He says, we shall come one day to a heaven where we shall gratefully know that God's great refusals were sometimes the true answers to our truest prayers. The greatest unanswered prayer of all time also led to the greatest miracle of all time. Let's not forget that when we look down right now at our unanswered prayers. I guess I, I, I want to leave you with uh, more of a heart thing because I'm, I'm, I'm nervous that I filled your heads with too much stuff today, and I don't want to leave you with that. And I think when I wrestle with Steve and we're going through some things in our life right now, and when I wrestle with unanswered prayers, and I will till kingdom come, I think the thing that's been most comforting to my journey as an apprentice of Jesus is the reality that God weeps with us. I don't understand a lot of it, I'll be honest. I wish I did, but I believe that because I see it, I see it. Um, I'm pretty convinced that any decent sermon always has a reference to Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> the Magician's Nephew, which depending on what order you read them in is the first one, I adhere to that, um, has a character named Diggory. Diggory uh, enters Narnia, and back in real world, Diggory's mom is uh, dying of cancer. And it's an interesting scene. I think it's very autobiographical for C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis lost his mom to cancer at age 11. Later in his life, he would lose his wife, Joy, to cancer at age 45. So he's not writing from some kind of distant scenario. I think he's trying to work out his faith through the lives of these kids. So Diggory is watching Aslan, who's the personification of Jesus, and watching Aslan, you know, having a, a view of how Aslan created the world, and there's this magic fruit, and so he kind of summons the courage to come up to this huge lion and ask if he could perhaps take just a little morsel of the magic fruit back with him to give to his, his mom so that she might be well. And this is the scene that Lewis writes. He thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet 
and the huge claws on them. And now in despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. And they were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. If you get nothing else, get that. God weeps with you. The psalmist says God is close to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. If you're there today as you look down at that prayer request, God's super close to you. God's right there with you. I, I, God said no to Jesus I thank goodness for me and for you because there was a better way. It's a better way. And it was, this was the only way through. Jesus like, there's another way? No. There's not, there's not another way. But I'm confident that God the Father looked down at God the Son in the horrifying and excruciating oh. emotional and spiritual and physical suffering and wept and wept. And God weeps with us. And God, one day, if, if Revelation 21.5 is right, God will one day wipe away all our tears. Right? I like to say our tears have an expiration date because of Jesus. And we're people of hope that live into that. So look back down in your unanswered prayer. Um, that you'll have an opportunity to bodily participate once again. I know how you love that. Um, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table where we have a past experience and a present experience and a future experience, right? We're remembering and now we're, we're reenacting the story and we're also rehearsing the story to come. Um, if you're willing, it's totally up to you, um, I want you to bring your paper forward. Uh, there's this cool verse in Revelation 5, 8. I don't understand 90% of what's going on in Revelation, but it's a really cool seed. And uh, no one can open the scroll, all the creatures are alarmed, and here comes the Lamb of God. Jesus, and he's able to open it. And it says the four living creatures and the 24 elders stood around. They all had harps and they had bowls filled with incense. Here it is, which were the prayers of the people. God will one day address your prayers. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, 10 years, maybe 40 years from now. But even if not then, this side of, of heaven, God will address them. They will be seen and heard and ultimately somehow answered in the work of King Jesus. And so as you come down to the tables, there's a bowl there. And uh, if you want to, uh, in hope, release that unanswered prayer uh, to the Lord. So I want to give you a, a minute just as you prepare just to make it. I don't want you to do it because like, I told you to come put your prayer in a bowl. Um, I want you to feel led by the Spirit to do it. So just kind of close your eyes, and you know your prayer request. And if you're willing to have your hands open, I, I love this kind of stuff. I think it really connects us. And, uh, and the prayer that Jesus prayed, which I hope you take this prayer with you, is so simple and powerful. How do we pray when God is silent? We pray this. And I'm going to give you an opportunity of just a minute of quiet to pray this over your prayer if you're led to. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. And then you insert your prayer right there. Jesus prayed that this cup may pass. That's probably not your prayer. But what is your prayer? And then yet not what I will, but what you will. So let's pray.
Papa, uh, on behalf of your people here today, um, we just, we believe everything's possible for you. And we release these, these prayers to you, which is vulnerable, at least for me it is, and fragile and frightening. What if you don't hear? What if you can't? What if you don't care? All these things go on in my mind and heart. But we release them in, in hope and in faith, at least whatever faith and hope we possess. And we trust that your will is better than ours. Thank you that in the in-between spaces that you weep with us and that you walk with us and that you grieve with us and that you give us prayers to cry out even in anger and doubt and fear, pounding on your chest until we have nothing left. And thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. Uh, the great no that became the great yes for all of us. And because of that work, we live into the expectation and hope that one day every tear will be wiped away and everything that was ever wrong will be made right again. And we say, come Lord Jesus. Thank you for opportunity to look back and remember your broken body and your spilled blood to enter into the story ourselves, to come to a family dinner this morning with our siblings and Jesus, that Jesus is here with us in a powerful way. And thank you that we live in expectation of the great feast that will be coming. May you be glorified. <laughs> and how we carry forth our unanswered prayers and release them to you this morning. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. And all God's people said,